0: Hello and welcome to That 90s Video Game Podcast, the show that takes a look back at the golden age of video games. I'm your host, Fergus, and whether you're joining me for the first time or listening for a second time after my first episode, it's great to have you here. If you haven't subscribed already, please do, so you can be notified of new episodes as soon as they are released. In this edition, we're taking a look at a game-changing system from the late 1990s the Nintendo 64. Once we've covered the history of this console and its development, we'll take a look at some of its best features and innovations. I think it's fair to say that while Sony's PlayStation outsold this console by a factor of three to one, the N64 is widely regarded as introducing a number of lasting changes to the way we play video games. And of course, no console launch is complete without a star game. And that came in the form of Super Mario 64. We'll see what all the fuss was about later in this episode. Are you ready? Let's get to it. The N64 was released in 1996, but development of this console started life as Project Reality in 1993, a collaboration between Nintendo and Silicon Graphics. If you watched a movie with CGI in the 1990s or early 2000s, the chances are the effects were made on Silicon Graphics hardware. They were the perfect partner. The design of this console was showcased in late '94, and by then was named Ultra 64. The 64 tag was important. The system was the first proper 64-bit console, the Atari Jaguar aside, and part of the folklore was that it was faster than the computers that took man to the moon. It wasn't until November 1995 that the Nintendo 64 was unveiled with its new name, and in a playable state. Nintendo had announced earlier in the year that the release of the N64 would be in April 1996. The console debuted in Japan a little later than planned in June of that year, and the rumour at the time was that Nintendo knew they'd never make the April deadline. A North American release in September was followed with a European release in March ninety seven. And that's where I come in. Actually, I didn't get the console straight away, but at Christmas in 1997. It came bundled with a copy of GoldenEye 007 in the box, Pierce Brosnan aiming his PP7 against a backdrop of fire and explosions. It was exciting stuff. The console sold well in its first year, but as I said at the top, Sony had stolen the thunder by getting the PlayStation to market first. It ultimately outsold the N64 by a factor of 3 to 1. One of the common reasons cited for this is the choice by Nintendo to use cartridges rather than CDs. The cartridges did have benefits. They allowed Nintendo to minimise the cost of the console, but also meant they were almost non-existent loading times. So was it a mistake? I think the decision to stick with cartridges made Nintendo look stubborn and possibly even old-fashioned. CDs were futuristic, but also far less expensive to produce, and as a result... Developers and publishers favoured other systems. However, with four controller ports, the Nintendo 64 quickly gained a reputation as a fun multiplayer console. And it had the games library to deliver on this promise. Perfect Dark, Super Smash Bros., Mario Kart 64, Mario Tennis, Mario Party, F-Zero X. The list goes on and on. Oh, and how could I forget? Goldeneye the game that probably deserves a whole podcast in its own right, and I'm sure it will get its own episode very soon. What made the N64 special for so many are these multiplayer games? My console has certainly served me well in this respect, being unplugged and hastily bagged up before being taken to friends well into the late 2000s. It held its own against newer consoles, many of which had split-screen multiplayer games that were few and far between. And that's a trend that's continued and only adds to the nostalgia of the 90s era for me. Of course, no discussion on 90s multiplayer would be complete without talking about screen-watching, or screen-clocking as we called it. Is this regarded as cheating or part of the charm of split-screen multiplayer games? The debate certainly rages on, and it's a topic I'll be covering with my first guest in a few episodes' time. Let me know which side of the fence you sit on by dropping me an email to hello at that90svgp.com It's difficult to measure the impact of the N64 without talking about two of its major innovations. Both of these were a gamble for Nintendo at the time, but it's hard to imagine the video game world without them now. I am of course talking about the analog stick and the rumble pack. One of the main features of the N64 was the ability to move in 3D space, Just look at games like Super Mario 64 and Ocarina of Time. Actions like swimming, flying and jumping are natural with the newly introduced analog stick. We're exploring Super Mario 64 in a bit more detail later, but I don't think it's possible to talk about the analog stick without talking about this game. 3D games at the time typically allowed players to control their character from a fixed perspective. The true 3D experience of this game, where the player could navigate with a 360-degree range of motion with infinitely variable relative camera positions was revolutionary. This simply would not have been possible with a traditional D-pad. And that's not all. The analogue stick added the ability to control not just the direction, but the speed of motion. key part of moving Mario and Link in these games was easing the stick forwards to start a slow walking pace rather than an immediate sprint. Aiming your fairy bow, tiptoeing along a high ledge or riding your horse in Ocarina of Time became an immersive experience thanks to this feature. The level of control this gave the gamer was totally different to anything else and these games served as the perfect showcase. And as I said at the top, it's impossible to imagine gaming without this now. Just over 12 months later, in 1997, Sony released their dual analogue controller, adding a second stick and ultimately cementing this layout as the de-facto control scheme for years to come. Would this have been possible without Nintendo? Probably, but like all great innovators, the company certainly took a chance with the layout of the N64's controller. The design was controversial, the legendary M-shape stopped players from reaching all of the inputs from a single grip position. As a result, and following the release of Sony's dual analogue design, a number of third-party pads in the same layout were produced for the N64. To be honest, I wasn't a fan of any of these at the time, but I think now my mood has changed a bit. The N64 controller holds a special place in my heart, but it feels in many ways like an advanced stage prototype, just one or two iterations away from perfection. Ergonomically, though, it's still one of my favourites. Certainly more comfortable than the PlayStation controller But let's not open that can of worms today. Like all good playground arguments, this was one where you definitely had to pick a side. A final thought on the analogue stick, and one of my favourite quirks was how it worked. Using two optical encoding disks to determine your inputs, it worked similarly to a traditional ball mouse. Do you remember starting the console, setting up a game of Mario Kart only to find that someone had held the analogue stick when booting up? The controller assumes the stick is centred when powered on and measures relative movement rather than the absolute position. This left you spinning in circles or staring at the sky. At the time, I remember the sheer anger of having to restart the console to fix this issue. It was the only way we knew how. It was only a few years ago, when I was sharing this frustration with an old friend, that he told me you could reset the centre position of the analogue stick by simply holding L, R and start at the same time. Years of anger and arguments could have been so easily avoided. Anyway, moving on. Another feature, or I suppose this really counts as an accessory, is the rumble pack. Hitting shelves in early 1997 alongside the release of Star Fox 64, this accessory slotted into the port on the bottom of the controller. Taking two AAA batteries, it certainly gave the pad some heft, The weight wasn't uncomfortable, and I would say that having used the controller with the rumble pack for so long, it became quite natural. What started, though, as an added extra, has become a de facto standard in the industry. I think at the time it was probably seen as a bit of a gimmick, but it was above all a fun accessory for the console. Firing off shots in GoldenEye 7 felt more satisfying with the rumble pack clipped on. And again, what seems very standard now... Ocarina of Time went a step further by making the Rumble Pack part of the gameplay mechanics itself. Once you obtained the Stone of Agony in this game, the Rumble Pack acted as a homing device for secret areas and items. And then, when you'd found the fishing rod, the Rumble Pack let you know when you'd hooked that fish and it was pulling against the line. And in the futuristic racing game F Zero X, the Rumble Pack was used to great effect to show the different terrains and when you were travelling over the boost zones. This was definitely a killer for those two AAA batteries, though. So, sure, it was a bit of fun and extra dynamic to gaming, but I think it really underscores Nintendo's zest for trying new ideas and pushing the envelope, and above all, wanting to make games fun to play. Okay, so there are a few accessories I haven't covered in this episode. The controller pack, memory card. The Jumper Pack that makes way for the Expansion Pack that doubled the RAM of the console to a whopping 8MB and was required for a few games to run at all, notably Perfect Dark and Majora's Mask. It also boosted the features or the performance of some games. And then there was the Transfer Pack that allowed you to move Pokemon from your Game Boy games to Pokemon Stadium. There are even more, some that never made it out of Japan and some that were total flops. Have you got a favourite feature of the N64? Or perhaps one of its many quirks push you towards the PlayStation? Let me know by sending me an email to hello at that90svgp.com Next, we're going to take a look at Super Mario 64, but before I do, if you're enjoying this episode, then leaving me a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, would really help me out. Okay, on with the episode, and let's get stuck into... Super Mario 64. Every console needs a decent launch title. Players want a game they can get their teeth stuck into straight away, and of course, it's a crucial marketing tool. Super Mario 64 was the first 3D outing for our favourite plumber, and wow, it was good. At the time, many regarded it as one of the greatest games ever, and I think some still do. I'm not sure if I quite share that level of enthusiasm but it's hard to think about this era of video games without this game being firmly in the picture. The game was developed by Nintendo, by the now legendary Shigeru Miyamoto. What other games has he been responsible for? Star Fox, Ocarina of Time, Majora's Mask, Luigi's Mansion, as well as many others. He definitely knew what he was doing. Playing as Mario, you are, I guess at this point somewhat predictably tasked with rescuing the hapless Princess Peach from the clutches of Bowser. With the Princess's castle as a hub, there are 15 worlds to explore plus secret areas and bonuses, all huge and free format. There are seven stars to discover in each world, and this takes time, a great mix of exploration, puzzling, and classic platforming elements. There's a host of ways to find the stars, races, hide and seek, fights, and of course, Collecting a hundred coins in any world will get you one of those shiny stars. The game is non-linear and you can explore worlds to find the stars as you wish and in any order. New worlds open up with the more stars you find. This is great as you can dip in and out of a tricky part and that keeps the game fun and enjoyable. One of the benefits of the cartridge format was that these massive worlds appear instantly and there are no intermediate loading times. You're straight out of one area and into the next. The controls are very responsive and the game suits itself well to the control stick format. We talked about that earlier. It really is a perfect game to showcase the capabilities of the new controller. Going back to this game for this episode was great and if you haven't checked out the recent release for the Nintendo Switch as part of Mario 3D All-Stars, then I highly recommend it. However, the game is not without a couple of issues, particularly when it stacks up to modern titles. Most notably, the camera viewpoint. It's not possible to get the camera in the exact position you want, and it rotates back around Mario as you move around the worlds. Modern games would adopt a fixed position behind the character that could be changed by the player to look around, for example, but that would keep a constant reference to the controller inputs. It certainly does not make the game unplayable, but it's something that you need to contend with, particularly on tricky jumps or narrow ledges or ramps. The camera will also occasionally disappear behind blocks or walls, which is frustrating. I don't remember this as being a problem when I first played the game, and in this respect, it's more of an endearing feature and part of the challenge for me when revisiting this one. The music and sound effects are great and rich in detail. The music fits each world well and matches the visual feel. Mario has a host of sound effects, such as cheers, grunts and shrieks, which adds to the game's sense of fun and personality. Visually, it's colourful and appealing. The 3D worlds have a good sense of scale and perspective, and the draw distance is great for a game of this age. The famous rotating trees and other sprites are a great bit of nostalgia for me, but also a good example of Nintendo making the most of the hardware's capabilities. The difficulty is challenging at points, and the game takes around 40 hours to complete just the story, but over 60 hours to collect all of the stars. There are 120 to find overall, but you only need 70 to finish the story, so there's some great repay value even once you've rescued Peach. So how does Super Mario 64 hold up now? The scores I'm going to give this game are as follows. It's a 9 for visuals, 8 for music, 10 for gameplay and 10 for nostalgia. It really hits all the right notes for me on those two final categories. So that's a score of 37. That's more than Road Rash, scored in the last episode, but it doesn't leave me much room for headroom in future games. But this is one of the best games from the 1990s, and not just by my judgement, but critically, this game was well-received on its release, and subsequently, this consensus has held up over time. And I think it's fair to say it got the Nintendo 64 off to the best possible start. Well that's the end of our special episode on the N64. Thank you so much for joining me. If you haven't subscribed already then please do so you'll get our next episode first. A review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts would really help me out as well. Check out our website at that90svgp.com and don't forget to send me any of your thoughts or ideas to hello at that90svgp.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode of That 90's Video Game Podcast. Thanks again for joining me, and see you again in a few weeks.